Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. Today, our guest is Dr. Leanne Gensler, a professor of medicine at UCSF, the director of the Spondyloarthritis Research Program and Clinic, and the program director for the Rheumatology Fellowship Program. Dr. Gensler served as the chair of the Spondyloarthritis Research and Treatment Network, or SPARTAN, from 2016 to 2018, and currently serves on the Executive Committee for the Assessment of Spondyloarthritis International Society, or ASIS. She has been the recipient of the Ira M. Goldstein Teaching Award in Rheumatology, the Spondylitis Association Young Investigator Award, and the UCSF Research Mentoring Award. She has also been inducted into the Council of Master Clinicians at UCSF, and she's always deeply devoted to the Spondylitis Association when we call on her. So Dr. Gensler, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we are going to talk about uh, ethnicity differences in spondyloarthritis, which is a vast and many layered, I think, topic. Uh, But to start off, Do we, in fact, see differences in the different ethnic groups and populations that have spondyloarthritis? Yeah. So, you know, I think, first of all, let's like just preface this with that ethnic ethnicity differences or racial differences and and especially disparities is something we should approach nowadays as thinking about not as a biologic construct. Um, but really about the fact that, that um, particularly for races, is that so much of the health disparities we see with races, which I think we'll talk about in, in diff- different ethnic populations, is, is really about the social constructs, the, the health disparities mm-hmm. that exist outside of um, biologic factors. However, in spondylarthritis, in axial spondylarthritis, we know that the disease prevalence, how common it is, follows the prevalence of HLA-B27 in a population. So that in ethnic populations where HLA-B27 is low, we see less disease. Okay. Right? So as an example, in if you go to Africa, Black African patients, there's a very low prevalence of axial spondylarthritis. And that's because there is very little HLA-B27. But that's not to say that patients can't get it. And in fact, when you look at black patients with axial spondylarthritis, only 50% of them have HLA-B27, the gene, which is much lower than what we see in our patients with the disease of European ancestry. And so that is really related to the gene prevalence in the population. Interesting. Uh, wow. And that's, I know one of the things when you talk about the social constructs, the other piece is the, the, some of the research early on didn't include other populations besides. Yeah. So there's so many ways where this is, we are limited because of course we 
learn about disease through and and outcomes through research but if you have that means you have to study the population right <laughs> and so so and so this is you know from and so in north america i think we're uh, in a better place than other parts of the world because we do have the diversity um, of different ethnic groups, but this still is a much lower proportion of people that are not of European ancestry. And what that means is if you have smaller numbers um, of other ethnic groups, your interpretation of your results is limited because you're not powered if you have small numbers. And so is that general, are those results generalizable? So there are approaches in this country, not just in spinal arthritis, but I think more broadly to try to really um, recruit for ethnic groups that are underrepresented so that we can try to address these questions uh, in, a, in a more uh, both equitable and um, measured way, as opposed to looking at what's been done, which is to study what's there. Yeah. And it's, so it's multidimensional. Yes. Uh, okay. Let's go up a level a little bit. So uh, this is a great topic though. It's, it's so fascinating. Uh, and the opportunity to get better at treating the disease exists, yeah. I think out of, out of the historical and systemic factors. Yeah. Uh, so let, like, can we just talk about that for a moment? Because I yeah, think- can we? Okay. we can go in the weeds. I'm good in the well, weeds. How do we get better at treating a disease? One of the biggest problems is if you're not looking for it, you are not going to diagnose it. And so we know that our patients that don't look like the classic textbook patient, which is going to be the white, white male, is like, yeah. you know, the old textbooks. If you're not looking for that, you're going to miss it. And so then you have this delay to diagnosis. This is true in women too. It's, that's not an ethnic group, but that's a group of patients that's typically been understudied. Sure. Um, but, but I think we do need to be really um, uh, mindful of the fact that our diseases can affect any patient and any population. And we have to be careful about anchoring to our biases of what we expect that patient to look like. Right. I've had more than once in my doctor's office at the eye doctor and in the ER that okay. I remember three times people have said, how can you have this when huh? you're a woman? Yes. And this is in the last five years, 10 years, right? So, okay. So that's one piece, but then it's also, you get into another layer, right? You get into populations, as you mentioned, that aren't having access to the healthcare that even, and when they get there, they don't look like the traditional patient. So it's like one more layer of difficulty in diagnosis. Yeah, they may not. Yeah. Uh, okay. So when you see, first, how did you get into this work? That's really what I'm most curious about to start. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. This is like, this is a common, common question and the, my story has not changed. Um, I, serendipitously is the, is the short answer um i um came to rheumatology late when i came to rheumatology late i had to find a research project quickly and the opening was in axial spondylarthritis or spondylarthritis and that's that is the like short answer that is really now my husband will have a different uh, answer for you because he has axial spondylarthritis 
I didn't know that at the time that I met him. He was never my patient. But, and so he's not the reason. <laughs> he, he thinks he is. Um, but I, but I think, you know, there, because this, there is so much heritability to this, I, I do think part of my, uh, not in, initial uh, investment in it, but persistent investment in it is because I have an effective family member and therefore I have kids that have risk. And so I'm deeply yeah. invested in the disease state because of how close it is to home, in part. Yeah, I, I can, I can feel you there. Uh, Okay, so let's get back to regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> um, no, 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 don't apologize. We like the weeds here. It's where the, the magic happens. Uh, okay, so when you have uh, differences in prevalence, so we went over uh, of African descent versus yes. uh, European descent, a little bit of that is dictated by prevalence of the gene. And is there a difference in severity of the disease within, and I don't want to yeah, about other ethnicities yeah. either. Uh, yeah. So, and this is where it's not that, that I think we have to put genetics aside. So as opposed to where like the disease is more common, the incidence of the disease is more common amongst people that are B27 positive more prevalently, the outcomes in terms of severity don't follow that same part. So that actually our patients of color, and in particular as a group, black patients with axial spondylarthritis or radiographic axial spondylarthritis, otherwise known as ankylosing spondylitis, they have worse outcomes in terms of more damage uh, than their white counterparts. And so, you know, how you explain that is in social construct as probably the biggest drivers in terms of access to care, delay to diagnosis, access to treatment, um, and it being less about genetics. And do you feel that, and I know a lot of women feel this way, I think probably some of the listeners, do you feel that some of those outcomes, whether you're female or a person of color can be dictated by the bias in the diagnosing or treating. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, and I haven't proven this, but I think this will resonate with many people and many patients is if you had your journey to diagnosis is long and circuitous and you've had misdiagnoses or other diagnoses along the way to finally get there, two things happen. One is there is more risk of damage accrual over that journey because you haven't been diagnosed and then treated. But two is the emotional burden that that weighs, that, that, that has on you as a patient, as when even when you finally get to a diagnosis, it's harder to treat because it's a struggle. And, and like how you engage with the healthcare system and providers, some of which you may have experienced bias from because they didn't recognize the disease, your response to treatments may not be the same. So I really believe that if we could get to patients earlier um, across the board, across ethnic groups, across genders, and diagnose them earlier, and then provide equal access to treatment, and that's not just pharmacologic treatment, because we're not just prescribing drugs as doctors, we're treating patients holistically, 
we're listening to patients. That's part of what we do for doctoring. And so if you haven't been heard because you've tried, um, that is going to affect your, your long-term outcomes. Really hard to get around that. Yeah. I think you speak for quite a number of our listeners in that. Uh, okay. So what, uh, in severity, I know women tend to have more diffuse symptoms, men more, uh, spinal related and damage or symptoms. Uh, is there any differences in the disease manifestation among different ethnic groups as well that we know of? Yes. Um, and again, it's, you know, a little bit challenging to answer this question because the various populations have been studied in an isolated way, but it's really hard to compare groups within a single study because even in the U S where we have very diverse populations, those popul those are still smaller groups. Um, so let's, we're talking about ethnicity, but I'm going to address gender too, because I, th I think those, um, patients with axial spinal arthritis, men and women, and, and obviously this is not a binary variable just to, to recognize I'm, uh, I'm m men and women, but there are certain patients that won't identify as either. And they may in fact have worse outcomes too, uh, in part because sure. of the rise. But um, men tend to have more inflammation, both measured inflammation in the blood and on imaging and more damage, probably as a result of more inflammation. That also makes it easier to identify them because damage and inflammation you can measure. Yes. So, uh, so that they get an earlier diagnosis. Women with the disease have lower inflammation that's measurable um, and less damage they tend to have more peripheral joint symptoms. So their small joints might be more both inflamed and more tender. Uh, they tend to have um, more reporting of pain, but, that, but I want to be careful there because I don't know that we can say women report more pain with less inflammation or just men report less. It's all relative, right? Yeah, right. Um, so, so, but, but they tend to get misdiagnosed more with fibromyalgia, whereas men get misdiagnosed with mechanical back pain more because they have more regional symptoms. Um, and because of this, like not, not thinking about the diagnosis correctly. Um, so those are the main, like the main big differences, I would say, um, in terms of various uh, ethnic groups. So obviously, if you're from of a Euro European if you have a European ancestry, you're more likely to be B27 positive with the disease. You're more likely to look like the textbook case of axial spinal arthritis. In populations um, in like South America, for example, where there's less HLA B27, they tend to have more peripheral disease. Actually, so in that that's small joints, and that includes knees, ankles, fingers, toes. Okay. Um, we talked about patients uh, of African ancestry or black patients tend to have more damage, uh, more inflammation uh, for whatever reasons, which, you know, some of which are probably social constructs. Um, and then oh, I'm trying to think of other ethnic populations that, you know, would be 
you would have questions about, um, I don't think there's, I, I wouldn't think about other manifestations like inflammatory bowel disease or uveitis, which are manifestations we see alongside axial spondyloarthritis. Certainly uveitis just runs with B27. So it's just going to follow the same prevalence. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I knew that. Yeah. Um, the likelihood of getting uveitis if you have the arthritis is really tied to B27. Yeah. And I know, that, so what about uh, Asian? Yeah, so, it's South, South Asian, East Asian. Uh, very, those are, we should not lump those to get any, even East Asian. There's very different populations within East Asia. So for example, there's a very low prevalence of HLA-B27 in Japanese people. And therefore the prevalence that how common the disease is, is quite low in the population for axial spondyloarthritis. So people that have the spine and the sacroiliac joints involved. Um, people of Chinese, you know, um, ancestry, are somewhat similar to patients of European ancestry. Slightly different genetics. HLA-B27 is a big driver there. Slight to, um, slightly lower prevalence of B27 in the Chinese population compared to uh, the European population. Okay. So with all that information, once the diagnosis happens yeah. for someone, what happens next? for these yeah. various populations? Yeah, so I think, well, first of all, it very much depends on the rheumatologist, assuming that this is, the rheumatologist is in the room uh, in part making the diagnosis or seeing the patient after a diagnosis has been made, then it depends on the type of shared decision-making for treatment that the rheumatologist engages in with the patient. Um, and that is dependent on, a lot of different factors, but there should be a conversation about goals of care, what is important to the patient, what's their quality of life like, how much, you know, do they want to engage in treatment and, you know, what those treatment options are. Um, so, so that it's a complicated, actually, like that first visit when you're talking about not just the diagnosis, but treatment, that's a lot for a patient. It's a lot for patients, particularly with, patient, with patients with access to arthritis who have lived with this, you know, typically mm -hmm. for years. So if you have lived with a condition that has had no name for years and now suddenly someone's naming it and then we're going to talk about treatments and those treatments are, you know, sure, you could talk about NSAIDs, ibuprofen equivalents. That's first-line therapy. Most patients have tried that on their own to some degree uh, before coming to diagnosis. But if you're going to next step, you're throwing a huge diagnosis, a lifetime diagnosis at a patient, and you're gonna talk about, let me give you this new injectable medicine <laughs> that's gonna help you. That's a little scary for patients yeah. who know their disease. They've lived with it for a long time. So I think one of the most important things when you first start to talk about this with a patient as a patient with your doctor, is trust. How do you build trust so that you can go on this treatment journey together to improve that, you know, the outcome of that individual patient? Yeah, I, I'm spacing off into thinking about that part of my own journey, which I'm sure is very similar to a lot of other people. And I think you, 
you captured it and I couldn't imagine there are a lot of people who probably don't have the same access to care and have to go through that same journey. Um, and that it's a very scary moment in life of not feeling informed. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and to be in a place where you, it might be no access to ongoing care or, I mean, I know there are some areas of the country where mm-hmm. there are not enough rheumatologists and people drive three, four hours over a mountain range to get care. And then you get there and have to make some very serious decisions. Uh, in a very short time. Yeah. That's what, like there's just not enough time in a single visit to get all your questions answered, to know that your next step decision-making is the right one. Um, but I think that this, the SAA does a really nice job with things like these kinds of podcasts and, and lots of recorded lectures that are great resources by experts that patients may not have access to yeah. and aren't able to get those important questions answered in that like short visit with their rheumatologist. Yeah. And, and so going back to kind of the question is, as treatment occurs, we still know that there are certain populations that uh, for probably a very a number of reasons don't flourish after the diagnosis compared to others. You mean with treatment? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not everyone responds to our treatments or has side effects. Um, but it's variable in terms of why. Right. So, and I do, I think some of it is not necessarily related to immunologic reasons. Cause remember that our pharmacologic treatments, first of all, you know, as I said earlier, the, it's really critical that we holistically treat patients and that goes right. well beyond the pharmacologic drugs we prescribe, but those pharmacologic drugs only work on inflammation. And so if you have lots of reasons for your symptoms, which may be both directly related to the disease and indirectly related, then the drugs are only going to treat a part of it. Um, and so it's a partnership with a rheumatologist to one reassess with treatment and then recognize the other factors that might be driving symptom burden and treat those with the tools that work on those manifestations. Yeah. So in terms of the, uh, as a treating physician, Mm -hmm. uh, anything for someone listening or someone who might be a treating physician um, of a way to stop the, the inequality or disparities that exist as they're sitting in front of the patient or the patient sitting in the exam room? Um, not anchor to your biases, obviously. And, um, and then that's for the, for the providers and then for patients to be their best self-advocate, you know, what is it that's, but no, sometimes providers or rheumatologists not asking those, those hard questions. What's bothering you today? What's the thing that's most bothersome to you today? So reminding patients that sometimes it's important to share that information, even if they're not being asked, because yeah. it is important. Um, 
And then I, you know, I'm a rule follower. So I follow the guidelines. <laughs> they, not just because I was part of writing them, but because I think they do work. And if you, if you follow them, then you have the best chance of a good response. And Whereas, you mean in terms of treatment guidelines and- Yeah, in terms of what's the, what do you start with? What else right. do you think about? You know, if that doesn't work, What's your next step? And I think that like, at least as a provider, I, if I do that in a very systematic way for every patient, then I'm less likely to be uh, influenced by my biases, which everyone has. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned SAA, like in, in your opinion, I know there's a lot of, lot of good work done. Is there anything else we can do to support uh, advocacy or patient education that you can think of that's missing? Um, for, I mean, I think that we recognizing that different patients will receive education best differently. So for some patients that is these kinds of, um, uh, you know, whether it's podcasts or videos, but there are still patients that like paper. So yeah. I think, you know, the essay had in the past provided lots of um, pamphlets for providers in the clinic to give to patients. I still use those. I think patients like something to take home to read, not necessarily our younger patients who don't want me to give them any paper. Right. Um, but we still, we have, patients that have different needs and and then remembering that especially as we talk about ethnicity languages if all our materials and all our talks are in english well that is not helpful to our patients that don't speak english as their first language sure what do we do to support patients from different populations in the clinic um recognizing so a few things one is uh first language, like um, whether English is your first language and if not, what is, and then making sure that if it's not English, we are providing a way to communicate that in the, the language of the, the chosen, the patient's, you know, preference. And then similarly remembering, I think this is, this is really important is be careful about assuming gender based on a patient's appearance. So in, in our healthcare system, we have a patient's pronouns as part of the record. And I think it's really important that as providers, we're making sure we know how the patient would like to be addressed and what their gender identity is, which is very different from their gender expression. Yeah. Inter that's very interesting. Thanks for that. Uh, and Richard is in the green room and he said we send printed brochures in both English and Spanish generally. Well, uh, I would just say like in San Francisco, obviously I'm in San Francisco, but um, we have a, a lot of patients from East Asia in particular, uh, I'm looking at the chat here, but in particular, I would find it helpful if there were material in Cantonese and Mandarin. Yeah. And what about uh, Latin America? Well, Spanish, it says English and Spanish. Oh, yeah, there we go. Okay. Yeah, so that's, 
Sorry. Uh, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit. Maybe let's turn it to research before we wrap up. Yeah. Uh, is there good research going on out there in the ethnic disparities? Not enough, I would say. I mean, you were at the Unmet Needs Conference, so you know we talked about health disparities was a section because it is such an important topic. Um, but it, it's actually, it was really hard to find speakers to address this, even in other disease states where health disparities is best studied is in lupus as a disease state, which is very different than spondylarthritis, but that's because women of color are disproportionately affected. And so it is easier to study it um, in, in, and even in North America. So we just, uh, you know, we have a cohort that's now the SOAS cohort, which is, gosh, when did we start it? 2004. Um, so it's 20 years old now. It was NIH funded. Uh, it had four centers in the US. And out of the 1,400 patients that we had with radiographic access on arthritis, I think we had 60 or 70 black patients. It's a tiny proportion. So it's really hard to study um, populations that have a lower prevalence of disease. I think there are ways that we are from a research standpoint, the All of Us uh, cohort, which is an NIH cohort of um, patients with all diseases across the US is enriching for um, underrepresented or sort of minority patients. So I think people are very interested in this and, and uh, my hope is that the, because of that, because of the interest, there will be more grants written and more studies done, selected in these groups. Um, similarly, in, in women with access bundle arthritis is now being studied much more. But it's, it's really hard to look back, for example, um, if you look at clinical trials done in axial spondylarthritis, um, we don't study or include pregnant women. So that's just a group that we have no data on. That's not mm. okay. No. Um, and then we, um, you know, most patients that are studied are of sort of Caucasian as a, as the or white race is the, is the group that's more, most likely studied. And then gender is very rarely the disaggregated gender data is, is even um, presented. And so you go back, we're just right now trying to look at treatment response differences amongst men and women with the disease. And nobody published the, the gender difference data, the disaggregated data. So you can't go back and really back then. And so moving forward, people are, are are doing it, but it's really hard to address these issues when people are not publishing on it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I know uh, one thing when we were at Unmet, Unmet Needs, uh, and forgive me, I forget her name from, uh, was it Rochester Institute, <laughs> RIT? Uh, and she did a talk on equity in the in healthcare. Um, and she delved into how a lot of populations in different ethnicities don't end up in research because there's a lack of the, the trust issue. Right. So that's, and that's a separate, that's even a, a bigger issue. And that's happened to me too, even in my own cohort. If I look at the patients that have uh, agreed to be studied or 
uh, ask to be withdrawn from the cohort, which of course is your right as a research participant, it often is my minority patients. And I think part of it is trust. And so how do we get around that? How do we engage um, all populations to participate in research so that we could get good data out there and understand these outcomes better? And the way to do that is to have similarly appearing stakeholders at the table. Yep. So that's that we are not going to fix this problem sitting, you know, across from these patients without with, you know, I, I acknowledge that I am a white woman. Um, and that's that is going to be challenging for patients, even if they trust me as a doctor. Yeah, and I think this happens. Uh, I mean, I obviously live in this spondy world <laughs> um, a lot of my time, uh, and I see it as well in the different worlds where you, I sat in a large working group of thought leaders on, you know, low-wage workers, and there's 30 people at the table who are all look just like me. <laughs> And I was like, but that's not the, pro like, this, the, we're not, we're not even asking the question yeah. to the person right. who is affected by some of these, th this work. Uh, I think there's a, we're making progress in those areas, both in medicine and the larger system. But yeah, I think it's, it's gotta be. So more research, see if we can make that happen. Does engaging more, um, you know, community partners or researchers that, you know, are invested in health disparities in this area, providing funding for that in a targeted way. Yeah. Or if you put a, a request for, for applications out that really is like, send me applications on health disparities. Well, guess what? If that's where the funding is. That's what you'll get. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and most research does require more uh, granularity around, there are more requirements, if I'm not mistaken now, in a lot of like federal funding that requires that you study a population or you look with a, a accessibility and DEI focus when you're constructing the studies. Yeah, I'm, and what are you gonna do to, uh, you make sure that your population is well represented, how are you gonna enrich it? So you do have to address those, it's at least for federal funding you do. Yeah, and that didn't exist. Probably not, no. 10 years ago, 20 years ago? 20. Yeah. 20, okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we're gonna wrap up. Uh, I know you're not a sociologist or a public policy yeah. person, yeah. No. Um, but as someone who is deeply rooted in this and has devoted a lot of your work and your life and your passion um, to improving life for people with spondyloarthritis, um, and advocating for people. Do you, any final words on the larger issues and what can be done to improve outcomes for everyone uh, in the in the healthcare system, especially the SPA patients? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, I think it's really important that as we take care of all of our patients, we recognize the other burdens that they carry with them to access that care. Um, and the system needs to be fixed. Part of it is, but that not to not to put the blame on the system because I think we have to be responsible. But as a similar, um, as a, a, a as an example, 
you know, if I have a patient that travels two and a half hours on a bus to see me, and then they're 20 minutes late for their appointment because of that public transport, it's really important that we don't turn them away because then we're contributing towards those disparities. So I think we have to have mechanisms in place to support patients that from populations that have a bigger burden to carry. They just do. Um, and that's not to penalize others, but we have to fix the system to narrow the gap. I think we have to hospice the system and start a new one. Maybe. <laughs> In some areas, for sure. Uh, agreed. This has been wonderful. Um, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I think we could do this for hours. I could. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we'll, yeah, I'm sure there'll be lots of interesting feedback. So we'll, we'll wrap that. And I just want to thank you again for everything um, and your contributions and devotion to changing the world of spa with us. Uh, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.